I guess you realize the boat's getting down, down in the water, finally just, then he put out Mayday, you know, Mayday, Mayday, we're sinking, we're sinking. And he says, uh, wheel midship, I said, midship, permission to lock open both doors. Well, lock open both doors, they were closed yet, you know. I said, I ain't getting trapped in there. No way. Leonard Gabrigiak was at the wheel when the Cedarville was rammed by a freighter just a mile from the Mackinac Bridge. His testimony on the accident caused his captain to lose his license after the Cedarville rolled in over 100 feet of water, killing 10 men. I'm Rick Mixter, and this is Mixtery. The story of the collision in the Straits was largely forgotten by the time I produced Deep Six Titanics of the Great Lakes in 1997. For many of the sailors, it was the first time they had been interviewed since the sinking in 1965. Only one book and a few tragic anniversary stories in newspapers had talked about the loss. But because Cedarville was the largest intact shipwreck in Lake Huron, I just knew the story had to be told. And because the accident was only a few decades old, I knew those eyewitnesses were still around to tell me what happened. I found Len Gabrigiak still living in the town he grew up in, in northern Michigan, east of the Mackinac Bridge. I was born in Rogers City, the youngest of the family of uh, six, five boys and one girl. Lived at 355 South First Street, right across from Greca's Tavern, which uh, my dad was part owner. Len's mother passed away only a few years after he was born. He recalled that most of his brothers found jobs on freighters, working from the world's largest limestone quarry at a port called Calcite. He also knew from his brother Stanley, it was a dangerous job working the lakes. 1937, they had the explosion in the boiler room on a WF White. He was a stokerman, and he went down toward the bilge as far as he could get away from the steam, you know. But he still got burnt a little bit. Either one or two lives were lost, or two guys got scalded to death. One was trying to crawl out of a big porthole, and he didn't make it, you know. Len's brother Frank vanished on Lake Superior while working on a ship called the Edward Townsend. Frank, I believe, was 27 years old, Len. He was on uh, E.Y. Townsend, I think that belonged to the Interlake steamship at that time. They had loaded in Duluth, and Four or five hours out of Duluth, he went to call Frank for his watch, and uh, he wasn't there. Searched the whole ship, nowhere to be found. They notified the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard came out and made a search, and nothing was, didn't find anybody. Len's childhood in the 1930s was tough, especially without a mother. He reminisces sliding in the mud flats and mowing grass in the city park to try and make money. I think our first job, well, they had the bowling alley then, and uh, it was fairly new. And uh, a lot of times there weren't enough pin setters around. They didn't have automatic pin setters then. We'd jump two alleys, you know, take care of two alleys. Well, you made more money that way too. But then when we got through working, we'd end up spending most of the money bowling anyway, you know, for entertainment. The Gray Freighters and the Bradley Fleet were paying 75 cents an hour, and soon Len was signed up to ship out. He knew there wasn't much else to do in Rogers City. It seemed like everybody went sailing. That's all there was, you know. 
Len got his first assignment making food in the galley. He was then moved to the engine room on the T.W. Robinson. He hated the job right away. It seemed like they were down there scrubbing all the time, you know, and I says, geez, I hated that. When I was at home, uh, my dad and I were living alone. Everybody else was gone away. I had to do the shopping, I had to do the cooking, I had to do the washing, I had to clean the house. I said, shit, I never had much time with myself, you know. I used to sing a little song to my dad. I said, one of these days, now don't forget it, one of these days you're going to regret it. And then i go on and on, you know. I know what you're thinking. You don't like it here, you know. Which I didn't, but I didn't come out and tell him, you know. Len didn't talk much about his mother, but there was a question that kept burning in his mind. He finally got up the nerve to ask his dad one night. Back in my mind, I was thinking, how come I can't remember my mother, you know? Just if I could get an image of her face, you know? Finally, I looked at him and I said, how come you never remarried? He looked at me and he says, there was only one woman in my life, and that was your mother, and that was the end of the story, you know? Len went to deck watch for a year and then tested for able-bodied seamen. This would allow him to work on the winches, the hatches, and even fill in as wheelsmen during breaks. I was on the old calcite first, and I was on there for two, three years. And then uh, finally got a watching job. And when I went watching, I went up the pilot house off watch to take the wheel and learn how to wheel. I think it was on a climber that I went wheeling within a year or two. The climber would play an integral role in building the mighty Mackinac Bridge. And Len remembers the massive steel cylinders that were constructed north of Alpena. These would be caissons that would cut their way into the lake bottom to anchor the structure. Where Stoneport is now, they built the caissons there and then they put them on barges and hauled them up to Mackinac, you know, with a tug. Limestone from nearby mines was brought in to sink the caissons to the bedrock. Freighters would pull alongside and use their self-unloading booms to feed rock into the foundations. When we went up there with a load of stone, we'd, well, they'd have people on a caisson, on a catwalk, but I was at the boom one time and uh, the weather kicked up, you know. You had waves, some big waves rolling in there. Sometimes you just maybe dropped an outside anchor to hold her there and unload as fast as you could to get out of there. But you know, you dump 13, 14,000 tons of stone, you didn't even see where, <laughs> where it went, you know. <laughs> you do it on a dock, you know, you got a big pile, but not in them caissons, I'll tell you. Well, you're down there, you know, a couple hundred feet, and I don't know how wide them, them caissons were wide. The caissons would sink into the lake bottom and new sections would be added to the top. Len didn't envy the job of the welders as winter set in. As this caisson was being driven down or whatever you, however they did it, they added another section to it. You see these guys out there in the fall welding that new section to the, the one below it. And that spray had come over and it hit their rain gear and it just, you could see the ice just fall off of their rain gear. I used to say, boy, those guys are earning their money. Millions of tons of limestone has been blasted from the earth at the quarry at Rogers City. 
only a fraction of that gravel and rock becomes highways and bridge projects. Since the 1930s, over half of that ancient coral has been used in making steel. In 1927, the Bradley fleet launched the longest freighter on the Great Lakes. Named for U.S. Steel's president, the Carl D. Bradley hauled a record load of limestone that took 300 rail cars to unload. By the 1950s, the Carl D. Bradley was seeing her age. Its old riveted hull was beginning to rust and Len says he was nervous sailing her. Out on Lake Michigan, loaded with water naturally because it was rough out. And right by here, that I said, what's that? Ah, rivets are out, the water's coming out of the side tank, you know. And every once in a while you hear, ping, what's that? Probably a rivet breaking off. A few of the steamer Myron C. Taylor's crew were moved to the Bradley in November of 1958. Steel production was up, and the ship was to bring large open-hearth limestone to the foundries in Gary, Indiana. Len had just left the Army that summer where he worked at a Nike missile base, and U.S. Steel was asking him to return for a fall trip on the Taylor. And I didn't even know if I was going to have a job because things, 1958, things were really getting tight. A lot of people were un unemployed already. So I get back home and I told Pat I'd marry her when I got out of the service if she was still around. If she'd wait for me, that's the way I put it. Len rode the freighter up the St. Mary's River and found a gale awaited when he went to relieve the wheelsman for his shift. We had loaded uh, stone out of here for, uh, supposed to be for Algoma Steel, just beyond the suit locks. And a whole gale come up. You could see the waves just pounding right over the dock where we were supposed to unload, you know. I just coming up the deck and hit the, just stepped across the door jam there in the hallway and yeah, radio playing real loud. Gabby, Gabby, geez, the Bradley's sinking Lake Michigan. I said, what? Yeah, it's breaking up. It's on the radio. Matey, matey. Holy crap. 33 men were lost when the Bradley split and sank in northern Lake Michigan. That same storm was plowing its way to Len and his crew, and the captain was in a hurry to get moving. So wouldn't you know it, 8 o'clock, he pulls up the anchor. We go into Algoma. What a sight. That boat took a bang against that dock. He come down on deck and told the mate, tell him, Watchmen down there to put all they can on the belts. Whether it spills or not, we got to get unloaded and get out of here. There he booms way up like that. Then the next thing, down in a pile, you know. Just, you couldn't control it, you know. Well, you could. You, I, when I was at the boom, I'd just keep moving the boom a little bit, you know. Whether it go up or down, that's okay, but you can get her to the side, you know, keep it out of the pile anyway. The skipper found refuge with several other ships midway down the St. Mary's River. Len noticed the captain was anxious to keep going. It turns out he had a relative on the sunken freighter. The old man there, I knew he, he went down to his room. He had some, uh, Chick Valley was a conveyorman or assistant conveyorman on Bradley. And that was some relation of his. And every time he went down to his room and he come back, he could smell it. He'd hit in a whiskey bottle, you know. You could smell it. I could anyway. So we get out by detour light. 
he tells Louis Carter, the second mate, he says, uh, lay out a course one or two miles off Hammond Bay. So anyway, he goes down to his room. He says, you're going to have to hold her up, you know, with the wind, we got her broadside. We're plugged with water. And, uh, geez, you get out there in the open and we can tell me, you know, the mate, well, then you better hold her up more than that. And he keeps telling me this, you know. Well, you just watch the magnetic and hold up what you have to hold up, you know, to keep her on course. It's okay. Dip water to the starboard, almost to the deck, then back to port, almost all the way across her. I thought for a while he was going to go Lake Michigan to look for the Bradley survivors, you know. And I thought to myself, he makes a haul toward that bridge, I'm getting in a life jacket and he can go because I'm leaving. I'll get off of here. That's what I was thinking to myself. Two men survived the sinking, tossed on an angry lake overnight and picked up by a Coast Guard cutter that next morning. The tailor was taking a pounding as it rounded Lake Huron, but they were headed for the dock rather than a rescue run. Get down here to Kelsite. Boy, she's blowing. We went around that break wall and the man and she take the dips. Finally, one of the hatch covers come loose, fell in the cargo hole, bent the hatch leaves all the hell. They had it, when we got into the dock, they finally had to get a crane down there and lift them out and take them up to the shop and bend them back in place. Well, the old man left. He got off the boat. U.S. Steel had a remarkable safety record prior to the loss of the Bradley, and many sailors couldn't figure out why the captain sailed into a bad gale. Mostly everyone was wondering why were they out there, you know, number one. There were other boats anchored other places, why weren't they, you know. But then a lot of them thought, well, you know, that bonus deal on tonnage, maybe that had something to do with it. Who knows, you know. Seven years later, Len was testing for a command position with the fleet. Now a licensed third mate, he was to take the Cedarville out in May of 1965. His captain was one of the survivors from the Carl D. Bradley sinking, Elmer Fleming. It was Good Friday. We were fitting out down here in Kelsite, and we had a snowstorm. We must have had, a, I'd say, a foot of snow on the deck. We were just about finished loading. Had everything tarped down, strong backs on. Elmer Fleming come down on the dock, put his bag down. About 15 minutes later, 20 minutes, come back on the dock, told the watchman, had the deckhand go up and get his bags, he's getting off. He went and got his bags. He left the ship. Well, I don't know if he was in contact with the office or not, but then there must have some kind of communication there that Jopik was first mate. He had his master's license, so he went skipper. Harry Pecan was second mate. He went first mate. Stanley Rigwalski was third mate. He went second mate. And Leonard Debrishak was wheelsman with a license just out of school went third mate, because it was the only license aboard. 
third mate, Gabrigiak, was less than thrilled that his first trip out was in a blinding blizzard. We left Kelsey and uh, I was kind of nervous, you know. Uh, what in the hell kind of break in is this? You know, first trip of the season, storm. Well, I come on watch at 40 mile point, eight o'clock. And Javik uh, says lay out a course for uh, We're going to go through uh, Sheboygan Channel, but you can't get through there. That's not a, the Mackinac was, I don't know if they were even out. We didn't know about the Mackinac. Anyway, I said uh, to him, I think it'd be better to go around Round Island, between Round Island and Mackinac Island. And then if you get caught in the ice, at least you won't get thrown up on the shoals, you know. Well, okay, we'll go through Round Island. Well, geez, we're breaking ice, breaking ice. And you can see we're slowing down, you know, full speed ahead and just hardly making too much headway. Well, uh, Stanley Rigwalski, on the 12 to 4, he'd come in about 10 to 12 or leave me. I told him what was happening. Just as soon as I said that, there we were stopped in the ice. Couldn't go any further. A call was made to the Cutter Mackinac, which was only a few miles away. They told the Cedarville to stay put until they could break their way to them the next morning. The rest of the trip to Gary was uneventful, and the Cedarville returned to Calcite to load 14,411 tons of open hearth stone. We started loading 8, 9 o'clock at night, and I seen Cook down there then. I was on watch. That's when I found out I was getting bumped back. And then the mate told me I'd be going back uh, wheeling on the 8 to 12 in the morning, you know. That's okay. So I come home that after midnight, Pat picked me up. I think it was foggy then. And I said, uh, well, I'm going to go back to the boat early. Boat. We're due out at 5.30, I think, 5 or 5.30, I says, I'm going to go back about 3.30 so I can get a couple hours sleep because I'd been up all day, you know. Len had barely seen his home and wife before the ship was underway again, and the new captain was ordering full steam ahead through the blinding fog. So I wasn't on watch too long, and we were by the Sheboygan traffic buoy, and I could hear that toom, 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 toom. I says, that's one of the Ford boats. And here's that diesel, you know, just a pound. And I could see her faintly through the fog, you know, as they had blown a whistle on the port side, you know, take her on the port side. Then after that, a lot of strange things happened, you know, change of course here, change there, then somebody's showing up, change of course, steady there, calling another boat, no answer. Then another boat calls, there's a boat over there that won't answer. Legally, the top Dalsfjord didn't need to radio her intentions, and the skipper changed his mind on taking the southern route and instead began to veer northeast for Round Island Passage. Cedarville's skipper was sounding his horn for a port-to-port -port pass, but the Norwegian freighter was converging to pass on the starboard. They heard Cedarville's horn, and the radar blip was so big they couldn't determine their distance. 
so they stopped engines. Cedarville wasn't slowing down. Next thing there, there she's coming. Out of the fog, I Cook was at the radar there and he says, these captains, she's closing in on us. I looked over there, 45 degrees off the port bow. I could see the bow coming out of the fog. That's it, I'm gonna get hit. Well, put her hard left, try to swing around too late, you know. It would have been earlier maybe, you know. Or if you had the distance, it might have been done. The sharp bow of the saltwater vessel sliced into the side of Cedarville just behind the boom. Lake Huron started pouring into Cedarville's number two hold, adding to the weight of thousands of tons of stone. The freighter took a deep list to port. First we got hit, and they stopped the engines. Dropped the anchor. Well, the top doubles were backed away from backed out. That's when they found out they had the big hole. And they tried to put the collision tarp over it. You know, it was just like nothing. It wouldn't, wouldn't do the job. The crew didn't panic. Ed Brewster, who pulled the collision tarp to the gaping hole, said he could see the shore and figured they would just beach the ship. Everybody said, well, he's going to beach it. And so close to shore between the, in the straits here, uh, we just assumed nobody panicked or anything. We just waited and waited until you know, until he, until he was going to beach it. And then uh, while standing back aft there, we were standing by the back cabins and I could see the, all the time I could see the uh, ship going down lower and lower in the water all the time there. And, and I did walk up to under the boom there and there was a, a, a scuttle hatch that went down into the tunnel. And I opened it up and I looked, looked down in the tunnel and I could just see the water swirling around down there. The captain was still trying to make up his mind, and he called U.S. Steel headquarters for direction. Well, he got on the phone right away, called the office. Well, I'm talking to Perella. Perella's in Pittsburgh. I says, uh, you gotta ring the general alarm. You go ring the general alarm. So I went ran over and rang the general alarm. You gotta get everybody out, because there's people sleeping. And I didn't know how bad it really was, and you know, and then I says, I'm looking around, no life jackets. Request permission to leave the pilot house. Get life jackets. Go ahead. It didn't take me long down the main deck. I knew where the jackets were because the Coast Guard condemned the old ones in the spring, but the new ones weren't put in the rack yet. So I went and grabbed three. That's the last time I saw Stanley ask me. He asked me, uh, what are you going to do in London? I says, geez, I don't know. I can't stand. I said, oh, I, I got to get back to the pilot house. I says, I come to get some life jackets. I was back there in the flash. So I put mine on right away. Joppy can cook through there down on the deck. Cook's decision not to put on his life jacket cost him his life. Captain Joppick was still wondering what to do, and it was frustrating Len. Perella must have said, can you beach her? Oh, beach her? I, know, I don't know. Well, the way it sounded to me like, Perella's telling him what to do, and he don't even know what the hell the circumstances are because he's not there, you know. I thought to myself, well, Martin, you're the master. You're the one that knows what the situation is. You've got to make the decision what you're going to do. Don't ask somebody out there in someplace else, you know. You make the decision. But that's for me to say, you know. 
The general alarm had luckily awakened the sleeping members of the crew and the lifeboats in the stern were swung out and lowered to the deck. The captain ordered the port anchor pulled and it wouldn't budge. Whatever Perella said to him, told the watchman, go down, heave up the anchor. Well, they had a hell of a time. The anchor was hung up and they had to back her up. And finally broke free and got the anchor up. The next thing I heard is, uh, said to Charlie Cook something about on the radar, lay out a course there over on uh, Mackinac's side, you know, and I didn't know where, you know, I don't know, I can't see, because they got the hood off the radar now. And... and I just do my job, keep her on the course that they tell me, you know. Len believes salvation was just off their bow, a huge island in the middle of the straits. But I'd never taken a ship that far after realizing how bad she had a hole in her. Never take her that far, never. She ain't going nowhere, you know. Then she taking on that much water in that big a hole in that big a hurry. Boys Blank would have been the place. We're nearby there. But that's my opinion. Len didn't think the captain knew what the situation was as the ship was leaning to the left and just about to capsize. When we first got hit, we took a hell of a list to port, probably, oh, I don't know, she was over there, maybe 37 degrees, I'd say. It's a long way. And I says, if you don't compensate for that list, she's going to roll over. Well, call the engine room, tell them to compensate for the list. So that's what I did. You're still on the phone. trying to get a hold of some of these other boats or whatever was going on there. Adding tons of water, even the ship, but added weight to the cargo of stone. The Cedarville settled lower and lower in the water, and Len asked the skipper if he could unlock the pilot house doors for escape. Finally, that's it. Shut the engine off, and maybe the mate down there hollered up. I, you know, there was so much going on, and I was trying to do my bit, plus my job, you know, and thinking ahead. What else is there to do, you know? And Ronnie uh, says, that's it. Mayday, mayday. Cedarville, this is Cedarville, we're sinking. Well, I went out on the port side. By this time, they compensated for the list of port. She leveled off. And I was looking around. I looked down the deck once. And I could still see the deck, you know, but I didn't look that I was more concerned looking ahead. And I looked at the bow and I said, geez, the forecastle deck covered with water already. She's gone. So then I looked at that life ring in front of me. I said, that baby's coming with me right now. And I wrapped my hands around there and I had my life jacket on. That was it. I said, when the water hits me, I'm close my eyes and let go and hope for the best. That's it. But I must have been hit up in some cables on that boom or something, because I had cable marks all over, you know. Len had a life ring and a life jacket, but the Cedarville didn't want to let him go. It felt like I was tangled up for a while, and then I could feel myself going right down, you know. The water was light through my eyelids, you know, I had my eyes closed. I could see through the skin that the water was lighting in. 
getting darker, and then it was pitch black, I mean black. And I was going down, down, down. I could tell I was going down just by the suction, you know. And it seemed like I was going down fast. And uh, I held my hand over across my life jacket like this. And I was holding on that life ring. And I finally put that other hand on that life ring. Finally, the pressure got so strong, I just, both my hands just opened up like that. And there went the life ring. Well, by that time, I'd settled pretty close to wherever I was from going down any further. Five Hail Marys I started from when I was down there till I broke surface and then I hit that collision block, that oak block, right there in the chest. Oh, and then I went back down. I shot right out of the water, clear of the water. My feet probably were in the water, but my whole upper body was right out of the water, went right back down. Took one good grasp of air Went down, then finally come back on the surface. And I could see the, the uh, stack, you know, the spar. She was still sticking there a little bit, you know, up in the air. But then I started looking around. I see a life raft, and I couldn't swim. The wind was blowing just enough to blow. I was too far away to, I wasn't that good of a swimmer, number one. Yeah, I'd better off just staying right here, keep the circulation going, you know. And that's what I started, rubbing down underwater. And after a while, you don't even feel nothing, you know. Now Len was floating in 37-degree water. Lake Huron had been ice just a few days before. Blinded in the fog, he didn't even know which way to look for help. I heard a little hollering, but off in the distance, I couldn't see anything. It was foggy yet, you know. So then, I said, all I can just hope for the best and hope somebody comes looking, you know, stay in this area anyway. If you can, I'll still keep loving. Praying all that much more and then finally I look over there and I see that, God dang, it looks like a lifeboat. Sure is. I started whistling with my fingers, you know, I could whistle pretty loud that way. I wonder if they hear me. Yeah, wind's blowing the wrong way. I don't think they can hear me. And I started waving. Geez, I don't think they see me. I was getting a little disappointed, you know. Dejected. Finally, I see him coming my way. Oh, and I really hollered and screamed and whistled. Yeah, they're coming. Just get, get my hands all just barely got them out like that over the gunnel. And uh, that was it. I don't remember anything. That's when that Peter Hahn told me, got me in a light boat and I wanted to jump back in, in the water. Hahn was a bosun on the German freighter Weissenberg, which had been passed by the top Dalsfjord as it neared the Mackinac Bridge. They had already manned their lifeboats when the captain of the Cedarville radioed for them to, quote, stay out of our way. After Captain Jopic finally called Mayday, Peter Hahn launched the lifeboat and found Len. I could see the big water fountain, water shooting about 15, 20 feet up in the air. That was from the 
air that came out of the cedar well and uh, we saw a lot of debris, we saw everything. We got by that and that's where we saw the first people that we tried to survive and then when we get a little bit further away uh, we shut our engine off so we could listen a little bit better in to see who is calling compared to the motor from the boat and uh, whoever was help or whatever we, we touched ours came closer we picked another one up and uh, I would say he was under shock he was screaming he didn't know where he was and uh, I, we had him in the boat then he tried to jump in where well, we worked and another one to get out of the water he was trying to jump back in a lake I, I believe he thought he's still in a cedarville and you know took got me aboard the Weisenberg I had to cut all my clothes off. They said I was all swollen up. And uh, I woke up. First thing I asked, where am I? The awful white room. And it was in a hospital room on the boat, you know. Just shaking. I never shook so hard in my life. My whole body was just, they had hot water bottles all the way from my neck down my feet, four or five blankets on me, just, you know, just wild. And somebody said, uh, are you going to be all right, Mr. Brzezak? I don't know, one of the mates off that Weisenberg or something, I think. They asked me what I wanted, and I wanted a cigarette. And I lit one up, Nah, didn't want that. I brought some coffee. Well, and they had me another cup and it had rum in it. Geez, I took a little sip of that. Oh, that warmed me up and I took that whole thing right. Quit shaking right there. Warmed me right up on the inside, you know. So then, I don't know what went on for a while there. I might have passed out again or something. But uh, next thing I knew I was They had me in this room, it was colder than hell, and they had, I had dungarees on and I think a sweatshirt. And we were still out there looking for survivors, you know. And I was out there and asking around, you know, they find anybody else. No, they're still looking. And then they transferred us. I don't remember getting on a stretcher, how they stretch. I must have passed out again or something, because. They put us on the dock at Mackinac, and then they had cars there and took us to Sheboygan Hospital. Len's recuperation would only last two days before the Coast Guard wanted to hear his story. The shipping company put him in a motel and paid him a late night visit. Then about 9 or 9.30 in the evening, a knock on the door. I went and answered the door. We'd like you to come down to our room, Len. Okay, so he took me to another room and I got inside and here's that, that big table out there with the Straits of Mackinac chart on there. And it was, I don't know who was on there, but two or three big lawyers from USTO and then Corey was there from Vice President of USTO or I don't know, there were some big people there. I wasn't really interested in who in the hell was there. I was just kind of ticked off. 
I should have been in a hospital. But anyway, would you tell us the story? What happened? When you come on, watch and so on. Go read, you know, down, down. Okay. Time I got through, and it was constant repetition with the questions too, you know. I told you once, this is the way it was. I'm trying to be nice, you know. And finally toward the end, I was getting a little perturbed. I says, I don't know what you're looking for. But you're not gonna find anything different from what I told you. And finally at 1.30 in the morning, I got out of there. Then, instead of going back to Sheboygan, I had to go to St. Ignace. So we get in there, in front of the Coast Guard. With hot packs still thawing his frozen legs, Len sat in the audience as the Coast Guard opened their questioning. Captain Jopic testified that he ordered the ship to slow down in the fog, which Len knew wasn't true. On cross-examination, the captain pled the Fifth Amendment so he wouldn't incriminate himself. The third mate, Charlie Cook, was still missing after the sinking, and the only other eyewitness was summoned. Who's next? The wheelsman. Well, Mr. Grzyk, call you to stand. I says, well, I'm take the Fifth Amendment, too. You can't. If you do, we'll subpoena you anyway, and you're going to have to testify. Well, see, bad situation there. I'm covered by a, supposedly by a company lawyer, USTO, and so is Jopic, so you figure that out. I start giving the testimony. I said, I'll testify. Let's get it over with. So we were going about an hour and a half, and commander, Coast Guard commander said, you want to take a break, Mr. Jack? I said, no, let's get it over with. So another hour and a half, three hours, I think it was. It was all over. Finally got back to Sheboygan. Len told the investigators they never slowed when the ships converged in limited visibility. His story was reinforced when divers brought up the logbook from the pilot house. Whatever I said, where we were, who we met, what the conditions were, everything was in the logbook. That's all he needed. The wreck report rejected Captain Jopic's testimony and took away his license for a year. It's believed he never skippered again, passing away in Rogers City in 1993. Len would also never sail again. Just weeks after the investigation, he told the company his legs hurt him too badly to return to work. They suggested a hospital near Ann Arbor that had treated Bradley survivor Elmer Fleming. I kept telling him, my legs hurt, you know, and he says, well, we'll send you to Mercywood. I says, well, I'll agree with that. What Len didn't know was that he had agreed to admission into a mental institution. Doctor there at Mercywood, you know, they were asking me, how come you don't go and associate with these other people? In the and I says, well, I have no mean, no reason to associate with them. I could see that they were all kind of whiffy-waffy, you know. Mm -hmm. And then at night down below them, I didn't find out till later, but they had rooms down there with bars on, and people locked up, screaming, hollering that night. Oh, bad. Well, anyway, they were trying to keep me doped up, you know. So I said, I'm staying right in my room. I ain't going nowhere. Get my time in here, Perella wanted me to come down here. I said, I'll agree to that, but that's it. Len was determined to get his legs examined by an expert. So he told Mercywood staff he had to get psoriasis ointment at the University of Michigan. They called him a cab. Talking to my doctors there, and I said, you know, while I'm here, you think uh, 
I was just in a shipwreck. And I've been telling the company I've had trouble with my legs. And I guess they won't believe me. They think I'm lying or whatever. And I've got to try to prove to them that I'm not. Is there anybody I could see while I'm over here before I go back to Mercywood? And he says, how much time you got? I says, I got all the time I need. My time is my time while I'm here now. Just a minute, so wait about 10 minutes. Come on with me. Took me down in this room and there's a therapist. He says, he introduced me to the guy. He says, this man's been in therapy for 25 years. He's one of the best in the nation. So he asked me what my problem was and I told him. He says, well, I'll sit up there on the end of the table. It's just like I'm sitting here now. So he raised one leg, put it down, raised the other one, put it down. Okay, get up on the table and lay down. I lay down on my back, and bent one leg up, put it down, bent the other one, put it down. So I says, well, what's the story? He says, the story is you lost all the strength in your legs and you're gonna have to take therapy. I said, will you put that in writing? Sure will. So he put it in writing and uh, I was happy in heart. I ain't getting some satisfaction here. Not from the right people though, you know. I had to go a roundabout way. So it was a snap going back to Mercywood. I, I was smiling every day, just waiting for that time. And I, night before I packed my bag, like I'm gonna leave tomorrow morning. Had my bag all packed. Get up in the morning, didn't eat or nothing. I just all eat on the outside. We get in a restaurant or something. Get up to the desk. I says, I'm checking out. No, you're not checking out. I says, You've let me out of this building now. Or I may go through that glass window, that big one over there, and you're going to be responsible for anything that happens to me in this place, and it's going to be big. Just a minute, just a minute. So he got on the phone, called Perella over here in the office. There's this Mr. Gabrishak, he wants to leave. He's threatening to leave. I said, you tell Mr. Perella my time's up down here. He says his time is up. I'm going. It had been months since U.S. Steel had provided a paycheck for Len, and he was living off investments he had made. $500 per crewman was all the company paid for their losses when the Cedarville sank, and the wheelsman knew he deserved more. I filed a grievance. So I figured out what I had coming. And uh, according to the contract, in the days that I was off, up to date, and I didn't know how long I was going to be off, because I hadn't gotten no okay to go back to work. That's something else I couldn't figure out. That, that's something else. Company doctor, what the hell you know what's going on? Clando went down the office the next day and he comes back. Well, then here's your check for your sick leave. And I looked at it and I said, take that son of a bitch back and you tell him this is what I'm entitled to and this is what I want. Don't try to shortchange me. I don't want any more, I don't want any less. I want what I got coming to me. He took it back. And he was back in a short while, too, with it. 
And that's how dirty they were, you know. Company Brass in Rogers City eventually learned Len was home, and they asked him to come to the office. You know, Pearl was behind the desk there, and, well, would you find out Mercy would? I says, nothing. I says, I spent time down there for nothing, just wasted time. But I was over at the University of Michigan. Oh, yeah, what you there for? Oh, I had to get my prescription refilled. I think I got a piece of information you might be interested in. Pull that letter out and I showed him. Where'd you get this? Who did he get hot? Who gave you permission to go over there? And he stood up, you know, and I says, you step over here a little bit closer and I'll plow you right against that wall. And I, I reached over, I tried to get a hold of his shirt and I was going to hit him. I would have hit him four or five times. I would have. I was so pissed off at him for treating me the way he did all that time, mm -hmm. you know. And that's the first time I had showed any anger, but I was glad I did because it, it sure relieved me a lot. Get it out of my system, you know. Two guys were holding me. I don't know who they were. And I said, number one, you sent me to a place that didn't belong. And number two, and I want all you people in this room to hear this, not just directed to Mr. Perella. But if I would have known the day that I walked into this building to ask for a job and knew I was going to be treated this way, I would never accepted your offer of employment. I says, take it, turn around, I walked out. Len hired famed maritime attorney Victor Hansen, who had settled a big claim for the Carl D. Bradley families. During their trial, he was repeatedly asked to tell what happened, hoping they'd find fault in what he saw. Len had had enough. All them lawyers, I just put my hands out there. I said, you want blood? Take a knife and start drawing right now. I don't know what you're looking for. I told the story three, four times. The way it was told the first time is the way it was the second, third, and the fourth time, and from any other time from here on in. Attorneys blamed anyone with deep pockets, even the company that owned the Weisenberg, which had saved most of the crew. They claimed that Cedarville was not seaworthy and it was overloaded. Perilla said he had never had a conversation with Captain Jopik. The judge ultimately discounted U.S. Steel's testimony and ordered them to pay nearly $3 million. Thirty years had passed and Len was surprised when I came calling to hear the story again. Len was retired from his second career at the post office and in 1997 Deep Six Titanics of the Great Lakes was released to PBS and interest grew in the Cedarville story. I also shared Len's commentary in Cutter Rescues in my book The Wheelsman. I was excited to hear how he liked Cutter Rescues and he told me he couldn't watch the video because he didn't have a DVD player. I sent him a brand new DVD player so he could see it. Len called to thank me and I shared condolences that his beloved wife Pat had just passed. I mentioned how much I loved her wild grape jam she made and he promptly sent me two jars. I knew full well that these were among the last in his pantry. Early in his shipping career, Len had bought four grave sites at Mount Calvary Catholic Cemetery off US 23. He buried his brother Lou in one, Pat in another. He saved one for their only son, Len Jr. The fourth one now contains the wheelsman who passed away February 13, 2019.
Just a reminder that all interviews are copyright airworthy productions and require written permission for recording or rebroadcast in any form. If you'd like to hear from more of the members of the crew, watch my documentaries, Cutter Rescue or Deep Six, Titanics of the Great Lakes. Len's story is also in my Wheelsman book, which you can get at lakefury.com or shipwreckpodcast.com and visit the store. I'm Rick Mixter. Join me next time for Great Lakes Mixteries. Where two seas are joining Between Great Lakes waters in the straits Where large freighters glide Underneath Big Mac's shadow The treacherous currents where the good ships Pass side by side Beneath these blue seas in the sight of each shoreline through narrows where the carriers are bound are the graves of brave sailors from high sails to freighters here where the cedarville went down it was one cold may morning just after sunrise when two ships converged in the stream no one sounded collision as the fog folded around them these shadows appeared like a dream they tried hard to save her and stood by their stations the cedarville made for the shore no captain released them so the crew rode her over until they could ride her no more her whistles are silent her window are darkened last notes were made in the log and we lost some fine crewmen as the cedarville foundered when a shadow came out of the fog when a shadow came out of the fog Now blame is for captains and company lawyers only mourning remained for the crew and I think of her hall on the floor of the straits each time that our ship passes through oh her whistles are silent Windows are darkened, last notes were made in the log. And we lost some fine crewmen as the Cedarville foundered when a shadow came out of the fog. When a shadow came out.